Welcome to MedKinza Talks, your go-to source for bite-sized content in becoming future doctors. I'm your host, Kinza Hussein, and I'm a second-year medical student helping students navigate the ins and outs of one of the most competitive careers. I will be sharing the lessons I've learned and inviting guest speakers to provide real quality advice to help you get into medical school, succeed as a med student, and prepare you to become a future doctor. Want more free quality advice? Subscribe to my YouTube channel and follow me on Instagram at MedKinza, where I post videos and infographics delivering content to you every week. Now sit back, relax, and learn something new. And don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of my latest episodes released every week. Hey, welcome. This is episode 24. In this episode, I will be interviewing Joe. He is an MD-PhD candidate at UICOM. His research and passions include neuroscience and immunology. He has had a lot of experience working with the NBME and AAMC. For those of you who don't know, the NBME is the National Board of Medical Examiners, and they write the USMLE. The AAMC is the Association of American Medical Colleges. They are the ones that write the MCAT. So I will be asking Joe about his MD-PhD pathway and his role writing um, the USMLE Step 1 Review Book. Stay tuned to hear more about it and some test-taking strategies that he recommends. Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So you can just start by going into like a little bit of an intro. Who are you? Where are you currently? And yeah, where are you from? Sure. Yeah. So, so my name is Joe Garrity. Um, I'm a seventh year MD-PhD student at the University of Illinois College of Medicine here in Chicago. Um, I'm originally from New York, so I grew up on Long Island, about 30 miles east of New York City. And I went to uh, undergrad at the State University of New York SUNY College at Geneseo, which is in upstate western New York. Uh, majored in biochemistry and Spanish there, and uh, since 2014, I've been enrolled as an MD-PhD student in the medical scientist training program at the University of Illinois. Um, wow, yeah. that's amazing. So what made you want to do MD-PhD? I feel like that's a very rigorous pathway, right? And it's actually hard to get into as well because so few spots are offered. Yeah, it's definitely um, a, you know, challenging application process. Um, and it's not something that a lot of pre-medical students even know about. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't actually know about what an MD-PhD training pathway was until later on in my, you know, undergraduate years when I was a junior or senior in college. Um, my experience really has, has been great. So, you know, when I was a pre-medical student, I always wanted to be a doctor. I knew I wanted to do medicine. Um, and, you know, as most pre-med students here, you know, you're encouraged to do research. You think that's going to help your application. So I had a professor I liked and, uh, she happened to teach organic chemistry and I was like, Hey, can I do research with you? She said yes. And, uh, really from there on out, I was able to kind of take on more independent projects, kind of discover things. Um, and her mentorship was really key in kind of saying, Hey, you know, you want to go to medical school, but do you want to give up research? Do you want to give up science? And these are the types of flexible career options that kind of doing this combined or integrated degree could Mm -hmm. offer you. And so that's when I started thinking about, you know, MD PhD programs and, and it's a little confusing. So for those that don't know, um, you know, the MD training is typically four years, similar to DO. Um, PhD training in biomedical sciences can be anywhere from five to seven years. So if you do those separately, you're looking at, you know, 
nine to 11 years, which is over a decade of your life. Um, so what they do in these combined programs is they shorten that a little bit, thankfully. Um, and you get to go to medical school for free. Um, they pay you a competitive stipend. They waive your tuition um, to offset. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, so that's another a big plus. And, and the idea there is not necessarily, you know, to go to med school for free, but it's also to offset the fact that you're prolonging your career and, and making money for, you know, anywhere from three to five years. Um, right. So what they do is they take medical school, which is four years, and they split it in half and they throw the PhD in the middle. Um, okay. And I'm actually in the last few months of my PhD and I'll be starting my clerkships uh, on different specialties in the hospital starting in April. Um, the last thing I'll say is just a little bit about my PhD and, and my research mm -hmm. is that um, I'm actually studying um, inflammatory responses and epileptic activity in the brain following a particular type of hemorrhagic stroke known as subarachnoid hemorrhage. So this is a, a, a brain hemorrhage that happens with traumatic brain injury, people getting in car accidents, motorcycle accidents, so on and so forth. Um, but it can also be seen um, when a previously unknown aneurysm in the brain ruptures. And as you can imagine, this is, you know, it can be pretty devastating and deadly. And um, there's something about blood when it gets into areas of the brain that it doesn't necessarily belong that triggers this immense inflammatory response neurons start to overfire and freak out and ultimately they they start to die and so part of my thesis is looking um in in human patients that we have here in the neuro icu um mm -hmm. in animal models as well as kind of in in vitro brain hemorrhage in a dish models um how can we actually protect the brain from this inflammatory response following brain hemorrhage Wow, that's really fascinating. My first thought is like, I don't think you can. Like, it's a massive bleed in your brain. How would you prevent your the inflama inflammatory response from happening? But that's actually a really interesting um, research project. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's been uh, challenging. Is probably the word word I would use. Yeah. Um, but it's been fulfilling. It's been great too. So, and I've gotten to mentor a lot of you know undergraduate medical students along the way, and that's probably been my my favorite part so yeah no exactly so I wanted to ask you um, just a little bit of timeline to give our listeners um, some more clarity if they're interested in MD PhD sure so you said they throw it in the middle so do you do three years of MD and then how many years of PhD and then how many last years of your MD yeah so you do the two years of MD medical school um, and that most of the time is your like kind of preclinical curriculum you're taking the courses a little bit of mm -hmm. clinical work um, you take your the first part of your uh, USMLE step one licensing exam and then uh, during those years you're rotating in different labs you're trying to figure out what lab do I want to join for my PhD um, okay once you're done with those two years you then start officially in the PhD portion um, usually in the first year or two, you're spending about 50% of your time in the lab, 50% doing graduate coursework. And then the remaining two to three years is pretty much 100% in the lab, uh, doing research, running experiments, analyzing data, writing manuscripts mm -hmm. um, until your defense. And then uh, once you defend your thesis, um, you return back to your third and your fourth year of medical school, which is primarily in the hospital. Um, okay. doing different rotations, trying to figure out what specialty you want to go into, so right. on and so forth. And taking your step exam. Exactly. 
Okay. So th that's a great opportunity for someone who has a really big passion for research. I think you get, you do everything a PhD might do just in fewer, like a smaller time span. Exactly. Um, so definitely for the people who are listening, if you have a really big passion in research, but then also medicine, and you want to combine the both, that is like the most perfect route you could take. I think personally for me, I did research also to get into medical school. Um, I thought the same, same exact thing you said in the beginning, people think that like, oh, you need to do research to get into medical school. So you get involved. And I had that same approach to it. And I wish I had known back then for anyone listening who doesn't like research or maybe it doesn't feel they're good at it or it isn't their passion. I wish I had known like, oh, I could have been a scribe for X amount of years or I could have uh, become an EMT because I didn't totally love my CNA position either. Um, and that gives you so much clinical experience. And I felt like the students, I only learned this really from the students I met in med school my first year. And when I found out that they had no research experience and that they did these clinical experiences instead, I was like, oh, like, no way. I just thought that was something everyone did and then found out if they liked it or not. So I just wanted to say that for the people that think they have to do research, you don't have to unless it's your passion, like Joe. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, the, the thing I tell the undergraduate students that I mentor is that, you know, research is one thing that you can do to explore passions and, and, and show a medical school that you're passionate, you're driven, but it's not the only thing. You can volunteer, right. you can work in a clinic, you can teach, you can do so many other things. And there's this unfortunate myth in kind of pre-med is that you, you have to do it all, you know? And you that you need publications, <laughs> Exactly, right. yeah. and it, it's, it's not true. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if research is something you like and you wanna get involved and see if, you know, it's something you're interested in, that's great. Um, but you know, if you don't like it, which some of my closest friends hate research, mm -hmm. uh, then, then don't do that. Do something else that makes you yeah. happy, um, and excited. And just be self-reflective early on. I wish I knew <laughs> years ago that, you know what, it's just not something I like and that's why I'm not good at it. <laughs> if I liked yeah. it more, maybe I'd be better at it. Yep. So my next question for you is what is your role at the NBME? Sure. So um, just some kind of term clarification. So the NBME, uh, you mentioned this at the, at the beginning, is the National Board of Medical Examiners. Mm -hmm. um, and then they co-administer the US MLE, which is the United States Medical Licensing Exam. Um, this is one of the two licensing exams in the country um, for primarily for allopathic medical students, but a large proportion, over 60% of, of osteopathic medical students will also take the USMLE exam. Um, and the, it's a three-part exam that you um, divided into currently four tests, although they just discontinued one, so it's going to be down to three. Um, and you need to pass all of these in order to get your medical licensure. Um, since 2018, I have served as one of the student representatives to the NBME Advisory Committee for Medical School Programs. Um, I was appointed to this role through another position I had, which was with the AAMC Organization of Student Representatives. Um, every allopathic medical school in the country has a, at least one, if not several, um, representatives that they appoint to the AAMC. And joining the, this group is a great way to learn about national initiatives across a whole range of topics in academic medicine. You know, we discuss mm -hmm. things like issues related to wellness, 
diversity, inclusion, and equity, um, the opioid crisis, currently the COVID pandemic. Um, and through that role, I was then appointed to be the liaison to the NBME. Um, and my kind of role there has been to meet with the NBME and USMLE leaders, uh, participating in conversations that really have been quite impactful in the last year. Um, the yeah. three biggest things that we've kind of been involved with is the discussion on the change of the USMLE step one exam from a three digit score to a pass fail score starting in January, 2022. Right. Uh, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on medical trainees' ability to sit uh, for these various licensing exams. And then more recently, actually two days ago, the, the announcement came out about the decision to discontinue the USMLE Step 2 Clinical Skills Exam, which is an in-person exam with a standardized patient. You go in, they assess your ability to interview a patient, take a history, do a physical exam, communicate appropriately, make a diagnosis, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So they've actually discontinued that exam. Interesting. Um, yeah, and then throughout all this, one of the things that we realized is we needed to have more opportunities for the student voice to be heard in these kind of big organizations. And so we've also uh, started a student engagement committee where we have representatives from all different groups, including osteopathic medical student leaders, um, students from the Student National Medical Association, the Latino Medical Student Association, so on and so okay. forth. And we meet with NBME leadership four times a year. Wow, that's really reassuring to hear that they're, you know, valuing student input a lot more than maybe they did in the past to make such big decisions, especially with COVID and like all these changes are happening this year into 2021. Uh, so 2020 into 2021, especially with pass fail now for two exams, let alone one, and also getting rid of the skills exam. So that's reassuring to know. And I appreciate it. I honestly think pass-fail is better than a three-digit score. I understand that the score helps, I'm sure, residency programs under like figure out easily maybe who to accept and who to turn away based on also other factors. Sure. But I think it takes the pressure off of like focusing on a number. And I think it's a better direction towards decreasing the burnout that we feel as students and then future healthcare professionals. So that something I'm happy with. What's your personal opinion on it? So I, I support and I'm, I'm very happy with this move to convert the step one exam to pass fail. Um, mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it's a licensing exam, which means that it's originally, its original intent and design was to make this binary decision of whether this, an individual that takes this exam is qualified for licensure, yes or no. Okay. Um, and a by what we wanted to do is provide additional feedback to the learner and say, here's a score, um, you know, here's where you uh, perform relative to other people, and they gave this three-digit score. Now, unfortunately, that three-digit score became extremely influential because you would submit that to residency programs, they could apply a filter, and, you know, yeah you can't blame them. They have thousands of applications they need to go through. They need ways exactly. to kind of dwindle that down a little bit. Um, but unfortunately, what it did over the last you know, decade or two is create this immense pressure on students who sit for this one day in their life basic science exam um, that has a lot of relevance to clinical medicine, but, but some parts of it are really basic science. Um, and 
the score on that exam uh, influenced what specialties they can go into, what programs they can apply to, and it creates this immense pressure on students that is really mm -hmm. unnecessary and, and undeserving. Um, and so right. I think this move to pass fail is going to help alleviate some of those pressures and really encourage residency programs to embark in a more holistic review. You know, we are all more than a score, whether it's the MCAT or the step one score. Um, and there's a lot of other aspects of us, whether it's research or volunteerism or um, interactions with patients and, and peers that make us stand out as individuals. And I think now with this change, yeah. residency programs and medical schools are going to have to start thinking about how to approach admissions in a more holistic manner. Yeah, and I, I know this next question steers off a little bit from the list of questions I sent you, but I'm just sure. curious because with the pandemic, right, our opportunity to participate in maybe a lot of different um, extracurricular activities has diminished. So how do you think um, residency programs will assess holistically a student if that student hasn't had the opportunity to add too much to their resume i guess we can call it besides just their step score or their pass fail score yeah no th so that's a great question um and i'll answer it kind of in, in two parts one is what the academic medicine community is doing currently mm -hmm. and then two kind of my own personal thoughts on it so um, the, there are several national organizations, including the AAMC, the NBME, the LCME, which accredits medical schools. Um, they've come together and they formed this group known as the Coalition for Physician Accountability. And this group has uh, really developed and has been conducting a review of this undergraduate medical education to graduate medical education, aka medical student to residency transition, and how to, what are the problems that we currently face, um, whether as a student, as a program director, and how can we better serve our stakeholders and constituents? Um, and some of the stuff they are actually really diving into those questions right now. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe they're, they're planning on announcing uh, some information as early as May of this year. Um, one of those things is to encourage more holistic approaches to admissions. Um, and so what does that mean? That means that rather than using, let's say, a GPA for, for undergrad or MCAT for undergrad, or in the context of medical school, your step score um, to kind of filter students out, to look at their applications more holistically, more broadly. You know, maybe someone is not the best test taker, um, mm -hmm. in that they can't, you know, they struggle to answer multiple choice questions, but they are an absolute rock star in the clinic. Um, and should their ability to be an amazing physician, uh, which of those things is more important? Do you, yeah. when you go to the doctor's office, are, do you want to say, hey, you know, how well can you answer multiple choice questions? Or do you want to say, hey, how well have your outcomes been with patients? How well do your patients look up to you and listen to you? How much do they respect and feel like you care for them and you empathize mm -hmm. with them? Those are things that really matter. And so those are the things that I hope will start to shine through in residency program and medical school admissions. Um, and how do you get those things? Well, evaluations when you're on mm -hmm. your clinical clerkships. A lot of those will go into your dean's letter or into your personal statement, into your letters of recommendation. So those are things that you can look for um, in a student's application besides, you know, a three-digit score. Okay. So really um, 
focus on recommendations, which means focus on your personality trait and your also your basically your skills in the clinic when you go on rotations and showing up on time, if not early, and being fully present while you're there and interacting with everyone and building your network. And then the recommendations will just come. You won't even have exactly. to focus on getting that good letter. But I think I agree, those will probably be weighed in a lot heavier. And sitting on an interview committee, I have seen how people who even come in with low stats, the interviewers or like the staff, they don't focus on that first during the interview at all. Like, it's just like, it's something you quickly look at to just get a general idea of, you know, how did they do? But you also look at what their clinical experiences were or their research experiences were. You do a quick scan. Okay, how many did they do or how long did they do them for? Um, and also their rec letters. And that weighs in a lot more. And then also how they perform during the interview is like huge. Exactly. You, you have to set a good first impression. You know, yeah, you want to see that they're able to communicate, that they're passionate about something. It doesn't have to be everything. Right. Um, and those are the things that I think stick with you as an interviewer um, way more than, you know, oh, they got whatever percentage of multiple choice questions correct. <laughs> yeah. And it means just having good social skills during the interview. There was one interview I sat on where I pronounced the applications applicant's name slightly incorrectly and so then the first impression I got of him or her was when we asked them to introduce themselves they put an emphasis on how they actually say their name kind of like as if they were insulted and I was like oh okay like I just didn't know this is the first time I'm meeting you and that just didn't give me the best first impression because it was not very friendly so all these things really matter so my next question for you is, what is it like to be writing a book about USMLE strategies? Yeah, so that's a great question. So this has been a, a, a project that we've been working on for almost two years now. Um, and I have to give credit where credit is due. And, and so uh, one of my mentors in medical school is Dr. O Dr. Azra Khan. She is an internal medicine physician um, and the internal medicine clerkship director at the University mm -hmm. of Illinois. Um, and her kind of one of her many areas of expertise is in doctoring and clinical skills training. Um, and she has been teaching that for, for quite some time. She was my professor. Um, and she was actually approached by McGraw-Hill, the publishing company, um, who uh, publishes the kind of what many people call the Bible of medical school, which is first aid for USMLE step one. Mm -hmm. um, and they realized that, that this book is used by almost all medical students throughout the country. Um, but the, the book there is really high yield bullet points um, and for, you know, a range of topics that are tested on USMLE step one. It often doesn't provide context. Um, it often doesn't provide kind of foundational knowledge that is required to understand these kind of quick bullet points. Um, and it doesn't provide a lot of, you know, strategies. Um, and so we came together with McGraw-Hill, uh, Dr. Khan and I, as well as several of our collaborators. And we said, well, you know, maybe we can make kind of an, another book that will serve as a supplement or a complement to this book, where we really focus on teaching clinical pattern recognition to medical students. And this would be applicable not only during the first two years of preclinical training, as well as preparing for step one, but really beyond that into their clerkships. And so the goal here is how do we take a case 
um, let's, you know, a gold standard case of, let's say, a myocardial infarction or a heart attack. And how do we present to a student what a prototypical case of this looks like? How should they approach the physical? How do they approach the differential diagnosis? How do they approach the treatment and all of the testing in labs? And then how do we tie this into the basic science? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, the, the, the title of the book, which should be coming out um, really by summer 2021, um, is First Aid um, clinical pattern recognition. So the acronym there is going to be first aid CPR. Um, so it'll be a supplement to the first aid book. And it's really going to help students learn how to recognize clinical patterns that are presented in front of them. Um, and we do this across all of the organ systems, all of the disciplines. Uh, we had almost a hundred collaborators from all different specialties kind of help us write this book. Um, and we're really excited for it to come out because I think this is going to be a game changer in the uh, preparatory resources that are available for USMLE exams. In particular, you know, now that step one is moving towards a pass to a pass fail scoring system, as opposed to a three digit scoring system, um, it's less important now to know the random minutia of this random gene that is mutated in this random disease, right? Um, Tell me, why why do they love those questions? (laughs) I don't know. But instead, you know, when a patient presents in Mm -hmm. front of you, you want to be able to really quickly go through your mind, okay, what are all of the possible conditions that this patient can be having, your differential diagnosis, and what are the labs and the tests or the physical exam maneuvers or the questions I want to ask them that will help me narrow down which of these diagnoses is correct and which is wrong. And that is exactly what this book is aiming to do. And so not only is it going to help students prepare for USMLE step one, as well as subsequent USMLE exams, it's going to help them during their medical school training and their clerkships. And so we're really excited for this book to be coming out. Um, It'll be again out in probably around June of 2021. Wow, I'm even really excited. I feel sad that I kind of missed out on it for my USMLE Step 1. Um, but I guess I'll, I'll, I'll focus I'll on, the, on the... Oh, really? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I'll focus on the stupid genes, though, for now, for <laughs> Step 1, my graded one. But I really, really love that. Definitely something I'm going to want to use before starting rotations, because I will be completely honest, I feel like I lack that training. Um, when I Even when I read cases sometimes when I'm doing practice questions currently, my first step that I told myself is just try to figure out, like, is this cardio palm renal? (laughs) Like, I'm at that stage right now where I'm like, okay, like, let's just figure out what system we're in. Because I don't think I was trained properly um, for looking at, you know, a case after case after case, and being able to figure out different differentials and being able to hone in on one. So I think that is definitely something needed right now in the medical space. Couldn't agree more. And, and, and the reality is, is that we're all different, right? Patients are, are never going to present in this kind of cookie cutter, you know, check off every box. Yeah. And so one of the other things that I really like about this book is that we're presenting the kind of gold standards, but at the end of each case, we say, hey, these are some things that aren't seen typically, but if you see them, it can help you move towards or away from a particular diagnosis. And what I love is I'll never, rem- I'll never forget, I was in a neurosurgery clinic shadowing one day in my first year of medical school, 
in our, mm-hmm. we were taking our biochemistry course and learning about all these pathways that I couldn't tell you about now. And uh, we saw a patient with Leshnayan syndrome, which is a rare genetic syndrome in uh, DNA synthesis pathways. And, you know, it presented in a way that I was like, wow, this is really fascinating. This is really interesting. You know, I need to know these things to help this patient. And I would go back to the textbooks and the way our book is written is that when you encounter a patient that slightly deviates from the normal gold standard, you can then go and annotate that in this book and learn and build a much broader knowledge base of how to approach these conditions. And I think that's the really thing that's, that's really exciting about this book when it comes out. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very excited for it. I'm sold. I'll buy it. <laughs> so my next question for you is just a general question for students who are preparing for STEP right now. And what do you think? So I'm only asking this question because of advice I got from a professor just the other day. But sure. what's your opinion on how many practice questions should a student realistically try to do before they take this exam? Yeah, it's a great question. And so I actually run at the University of Illinois. I um, ran last year and then this year I'm co-running a uh, USMLE Step 1 strategy series where we do uh, five different sessions with our our second year medical students uh, talking about how to prepare for this exam. Um, and, And this question comes up all the time, you know. And what I will say is that you know, and I, I think you mentioned this when we were emailing prior is that, you know, how much of how much of doing well on step one is actually knowledge of content and how much of it is, is test taking strategy. Right. Um, and I, I really do feel that it is about 50 50 okay. um, and that test taking strategy um, and ability to recognize clinical patterns in the vignettes, which is what one of the goals of our book um, is is really key. And, you know, you don't need to know all of the content to be able to logic or, um, you know, reason your way through certain vignettes to rule in or out certain um, answer choices. And so in terms of practice questions, I do think that training yourself and your mind to be able to take in information, respond to a multiple choice question. It's a learned behavior. It's like riding a bike. So the more Mm -hmm. practice questions that you do, the better you will perform at the end of the day. And I do think that for USMLE step one, practice questions are probably the most important thing that you can do to prepare for that exam. And there's many ways you can get practice questions. So the, the best way is probably to, and unfortunately these cost money, um, but (laughs) they are. (laughs) Um, but purchasing uh, official self-assessment exams. So the NBME does offer um, several uh, comprehensive basic science self-assessments or CBSSA forms. Um, and those are, are, those are the questions that, are, you know, the item writers for the step one exam are also writing these. And so they're going to give you a really good idea of what are the question types. Um, so you can get those, you can do yeah. those. Sorry to interrupt you there. So I thought, do you do those right before, like, are those the last practice tests you should be taking before USMLE or should you do those in the beginning? So um, what I usually tell people is you want to save some of them for your kind of quote, dedicated period of study leading up, you know, a month or two prior to your exam. But if you want to take one or two of them, you know, a few months prior to that, 
that's fine as well. I okay. don't think if you're in your, let's say, first year of medical school, you don't need to be worrying about this at all. Just Not at all. You know, get used <laughs> to medical school, uh, do as well as you can in your courses, because really the number one thing that's going to help you do well on these exams is doing well in your coursework during medical school. During your second year or the year, whatever year that you take the step one exam, because some medical schools do it in their third year now, um, that's when you want to start thinking about question banks and practice questions. And so these self-assessments are a great way to do that. I encourage people for both step one and the MCAT to regularly space out self-assessments, but make sure that you're not just taking a self-assessment, getting a score, and then walking away. These are learning tools. You want to then spend hours looking at those questions. Why did I get this right? Why did I get this wrong? Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing are, are there are QBanks out there and, and perhaps the best QBank out there right now, again, it is expensive. Some schools will purchase this for their students um, mm -hmm. is UWorld and UWorld does a fantastic job. It has thousands and thousands of questions across all of the organ systems. It has explanations. It's really fantastic. And I usually encourage people to try to get through all of the UWorld questions at least once. Um, right fully and like if they minimum. have yeah exactly if they have time to maybe right. go through a second time or what I did was I just went through the my second run through was just the questions that I got wrong because I didn't have enough oh, time okay. so okay. Yeah. some type of review learning or like process. what you flagged maybe too exactly exactly yeah I've actually been um while I review my questions I'll flag something if like even if I review it I'm like this is something that like I'm definitely not an expert on even after reviewing it and I feel like I'd probably get it wrong again yep. <laughs> so I keep them flagged I don't like unflag anything or if I got something right even yep. I'll add a flag to it because I'll be like okay I got it right and I didn't flag it originally but I feel like this is something that I need to review more in the future so that's actually a great point so I feel like you probably don't have a realistic number. I was talking to a professor yesterday and he said, oh, you want to do 10,000 questions before <laughs> step one. And I was like, hmm, I think you have to start first year if you're going to get through 10,000 questions. You have to start first year like rigorously to get through 10,000 questions. Because <laughs> yeah, UWorld is about 3,500, I think. And people yeah. are just fighting time to get through that once. Yeah. And so, so I, I will respectfully disagree with okay. the professor. Um, I, I don't think that there is a magic number of practice questions. Um, there, there are studies that have been published, um, particularly in the journal Academic Medicine, as well as several others, um, that have shown that there is a correlation between the more practice questions you do, um, the better your score goes, but it goes to a point. Eventually, it's going to plateau. You know, right. it's not I just. I saw like, that with my MCAT. Yeah. Exactly. So, so you have to find, and, and that plateau is different for everyone. Um, so, whether your plateau happens at ten thousand or two thousand or five thousand is going to be very different. Um, mm -hmm. The the key thing is when you're doing these questions, are you learning things? Are you learning new things? And then, importantly, are you retaining them? If yeah. you are not learning or you're no longer retaining, then you've reached that plateau. Um, and no, I don't, I think 10,000 is, is very high. Um, I think, you know, getting through your world and doing the self-assessments that are provided by NBME 
um, that's enough. And that'll probably be, I don't know, 4,000 questions. Uh, yeah. That's what and I as did. As long as you're reviewing it properly and like, you want to look at your right answers, you want to look at your wrong answers. And I like your strategy of going back and redoing, especially those wrong or flagged ones exactly. and retaining the information. So my last question for you would probably be, what did your study days kind of look like before dedicated period? And the reason I asked that is because I think myself and a lot of students right now um, with online learning, we have a lot more time in our days and we're, I think we're all jam packing our days with board studying already. Mm -hmm. Some people don't start later into second semester. And I think we're kind of losing like, what are other people doing? What are we even supposed to be doing? What should our study day realistically look like? So what did yours kind of look like leading up to dedicated? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. Um, so I took step one in May of 2016. Uh, so it's over four it's years ago. <laughs> yeah, um, but I've been tutoring it and, and teaching advice strategies ever since. So, um, yeah. um, you know, leading up to I, I did, um, I forget if it was four or five weeks of dedicated study period, which is slightly below the average amount of time that is typically offered. So um, last I checked, the average amount of time that's offered for a dedicated study period is about 35 days or seven. Um, what is that? I don't know. However many weeks. About that four. To, that's about five weeks, I would say. Five weeks. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, but the, the question that you asked is, you know, during that dedicated period, you know, from sunrise to sunset or from waking up to going to bed, you're, you're studying for step one. But what about prior to that, when you still have medical school coursework, you still might have to be going into the hospital mm -hmm. or doing simulations and stuff like that. And that's a really challenging time to, to blend things. And I think one of the nice, one of the few things that are kind of maybe beneficial about this kind of online learning increase that's happening during the COVID pandemic is that you do have more time at home um, and you can start studying for these exams. Um, what I would say to do is to use some of the step one targeted preparatory resources. So I'm talking about things like the first aid book, like UWorld, like Pathoma, like Sketchy Medical, some of these things that are a little bit more high yield relevant topics and start incorporating them into whatever topics you are currently covering in your curriculum. Mm -hmm. And in, that, in doing that, not only are you studying for medical school exams and medical school courses, but you're also preparing for step one. And there is sometimes, depending on the medical school, a difference between the types of questions they ask oh, yeah. and how those <laughs> questions are asked on the USMLE exams. But what I always tell people is that if you're doing well on the USMLE style questions, you're probably fine on the medical school questions because the USMLE ones typically are much harder um, mm -hmm. and you'll be able to pass the medical school ones. Um, and so what I would say is spend a little bit of time, it doesn't even have to be every day, but at least a couple days a week, incorporating some of the step one oriented resources, whether they're provided from your medical school or if you're purchasing them elsewhere into your study and into the curriculum. Now, if you can do that and you still feel like, hey, I can do more, that's when I would say start incorporating maybe 20 practice questions a day covering kind of more random topics. So if you're in the part of your curriculum and you're in the cardiology unit, right, you're gonna know a lot about cardiology, but what about the, the gastrointestinal system? Well, you covered that a year ago. 
um, but can, how much of that have you retained? And so start seeing how much of that study and, and relearn and kind of re-understand mm -hmm. some of those processes. And that's kind of the best way to treat this pre-dedicated period. Great advice. Thank you so much. I feel like I could talk to you all day, especially because I'm going through it right now. Like, yes, yes, give us more strategies, teach us more. So it was wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. And, you know, I think our listeners, especially the medical students are going to be really excited to listen to this one. And we may even have you on again in the next month or I, two to talk more about maybe strategies for students happy to do it. This has been really great and, and the questions have been great. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, if you guys have enjoyed the podcast, make sure you guys hit subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes released every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Also, if you've learned one little thing from the show, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review. It means a lot to me and I read them all. I'll see you guys in the next one.